zügig Hauptbahnhof in der nächsten Anschlüsse Intercity nach Berlin. My Lunch with Thomas. A story written and narrated by Murray Stein and Henry Abramovich. A production of Blue Salamandra. Sound designed by Arian Frank. Produced by Lewis Morris. Do you know of Ariel, Henry? I mean, the, uh, the sprite from Shakespeare's Tempest. Where the bee sucks, there suck I. Ariel, the spirit of the air, rescued by Prospero, who regained freedom after a year of service. I see you know your Shakespeare, Henry. <laughs> yes, I want to invoke Ariel, also Prospero, <clears throat> to help me tell you a story about a lunch I had with a man named Thomas a few years ago and about what followed from it. Maybe you can help me understand what seems like a mystery. <clears throat> But first, um, here comes the conductor. By the way, Henry, what are you going to lecture about at Aranos? I wish I could say magic, Murray, but I'm talking about a topic that seized my interest. Friends, so important in life, so neglected in psychology. But Henry, surely magic is an essential ingredient in friendship. Look at ours. Yes, Murray. How could I ever forget that moment on Masada, above the Dead Sea, When you turned to me and said... I don't remember the exact words, Henry, but I do remember so well the feeling I had <clears throat> at that moment. It was, here is the person I didn't know I was looking for. But now I see that I need. It was a moment of magic on the mountain. And so much has come from it. My lunch with Thomas was similar, although the roles were different, reversed in a way. Something surprising, though, happened at that lunch. The outcome was not so different from our story, story of collaboration. Let me tell you about it. I need help to understand what happened. And I think you are again the person I'm looking for to do that job. That's just what you said then. You are the man. Tell me the story of the lunch with Thomas. Thomas was a student um, in one of my classes at what we call ISAP, that is the International School for Analytical Psychology in Zurich. He stood out among the students because of his size. He was well over two meters tall and towered over everyone. Thomas certainly sounds like a man who stood out like King Saul. Was he a gentle giant? Uh, he seemed so. Uh, about 60 years old, I guessed, as I looked at him, with a big, friendly smile. He reminded me of figures I remembered from my early 20s 
when I spent a summer traveling around Europe and visited the German city Speyer. Several Holy Roman emperors are buried there in the cathedral crypt. And as I remember, there are tombs in that underground vault covered by stone images of Teutonic knights. Thomas looked like one of those, tall, straight, dignified. He had an aura of nobility about him. One day, after class, he approached me, and after a few words about the lecture, he asked if I would join him for lunch sometime. I was a bit surprised and taken aback. It's not usual practice that I sat for uh, students to socialize with teachers, but on an impulse, I accepted. And so the story began. So the story began. It sounds like Thomas stepped out of an archetype. I'm curious. Uh, yes, Thomas, Thomas drove to class from Germany, where he lived with his family in a small town in the Black Forest. Since he didn't know the restaurants in Zurich, I suggested we meet for lunch at the Weltliner Keller. When I was a student, I had heard that it was a favorite of Jung's. And over the years, I had become something of a regular there, or a Stammgast, as they say in Zurich. It's a small, quiet, out-of-the-way place, a kind of upper room. I was curious about Thomas, and curious also about my impulse to step over the boundary of the usual teacher-student relationship. It sounds like you were preparing a special sort of temenos in which to meet. Yes, you called it just right, Henry. Uh, it is a temenos, a safe and sheltered space, almost sacred, in my feeling about it. Let me set the stage. The restaurant is enclosed in an old wood-paneled room in a house dating back to the Middle Ages. Stone building sits on land that was occupied by the Romans when they first set up camp there in the year 15 before the Common Era. That's just a few years uh, after King Herod built those palaces on Masada. Across the narrow street from the restaurant is St. Peter's Church with its huge clock face, the biggest in Switzerland which sits on the site of an ancient temple to Venus. <laughs> and just down the stairs from the restaurant, you will find the excavation of the Roman baths used by the garrison of soldiers stationed up on the Lindenhof up above. And then, in the 18th century, Goethe walked down this little street in front of the restaurant on his way to see his friend, Pastor Lavater, in that house up there next to the church. In the 20th century, Jung came here often to the restaurant to have a meal uh, with his American friend, Fowler McCormick. What I want to say is this place is crowded with spirits of the past. And this is where 
I met Thomas for lunch on a wintry Thursday in early 2016. What a setting. This is a restaurant in depth. When I made the reservation, I asked the owner for a table in a quiet area of the L-shaped room. To my surprise, upon stepping through the low entrance, Thomas was already there and seated, remarkably, at the table immediately to the right of the entry. This is where the owner usually sat to greet people coming into the restaurant. It seemed to me highly unusual that he would give it to a customer. It must have been that the owner took one look at Thomas and thought to himself he was dealing with German nobility. That's how Thomas typically came across. So it was with a look of astonishment on my face that I greeted Thomas, shook the hand of the owner who was standing over by the counter to the left, knowing I'd need to give him a pretty good tip for this honor. By the way, Henry, if you look out the window over there, you can see Kusnacht across the lake. I think I see Jung is waving to us from his garden. Shalom! Greetings to our wise friend of the soul. You know, Murray, Jungian psychology speaks deeply to me. But I'm glad I never had a chance to meet Jung. So it can always be my Jung and not the real Jung. (laughs) I have the same feeling, the same sense, Henry. Jung would have been a bit overwhelming in person. Now Thomas, as I soon discovered, was a man with a mission. After we chatted a bit, ordered our lunch, and began to enjoy the excellent food put before us, he came to the point of his request for a meeting. It was not for a mere social purpose. He had something more serious in mind. He handed me a book he had edited and recently published, entitled Das Rote Buch. And the subtitle read, to, in my translation, C.G. Jung's Journey to the Other Pole of the World. I thanked him, of course, and said I would be pleased to read it. The opening essay in the book was by Thomas and was titled, again in my translation, The Way of the Coming One. The Red Book and Jung's Ecclesia Spiritualis. As I flipped casually through the pages of the book, Thomas ate lustily and watched me carefully. I was wondering, what's next? Remember, I had no idea yet of who Thomas was, but it did start feeling to me like we were setting out on a journey. And to where, I had not a clue. Your situation reminds me of one of Jung's most trickster-like quotes. If the path before you is clear, you're probably on somebody else's journey. (laughs) Thomas seemed to be metaphorically kidnapping and seducing you to go together on this journey he had planned. But he also did not know where the path would lead. In fact, I know now he did not have any inkling. He began the journey eagerly with a proposal. I have an idea, he said. 
Let's do a conference at ISAP on the Red Book. I kept my head down, studying the table of contents of the book he had handed me and taking some bites of the delicious fish on the plate in front of me. The big bell of St. Peter's Church now suddenly rang three strong notes indicating 1245. Almost one o'clock. I thought to myself, oddly remembering John Donne's line, ask not for whom the bell tolls. After a few moments, I replied, why do you want to do that? We've had so many conferences and seminars on the Red Book. Isn't it getting boring? He looked at me in amazement at my unenthusiastic response to his excitement. We ought to have a special word for the mismeetings between an irrepressible enthusiasm and a bored yawn. These mismeetings often end badly, Murray, but yours did not. So what happened? Thomas uh, now revealed to me that for the past six years, he had been intensively engaged in the study of the Red Book. And he had concluded that its publication in 2009 was a synchronistic event of the greatest cultural magnitude and importance. In fact, he said almost devoutly, Liber Novus was a book for the ages and would become the most valuable guide available for humanity as it enters the age of Aquarius. As he hit his stride, I began to think he might be mentally unbalanced. He was ignoring his meal now and staring intently into my eyes. Is he mad, I wondered. Is he mad, I wondered. What is the difference between a madman and a prophet? It's not the intensity of the vision, nor even the content. No, it's that they convince one other person of the truth of what they believe. Then they're confirmed, and the word comes forth. Perhaps Thomas intended you to be his Simon Peter. <laughs> or his Paul, the missionary who brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. The Red Book was Thomas's holy Bible, clearly. What he needed was access to a larger audience than he had through the meditation center in the Black Forest, where he had staged the conference that resulted in the book he just handed me. Yes, he had a vision. And he wasn't quite mad in the psychopathological sense, but he was taken over by a strong conviction that Jung had deposited in the Red Book a message that would be good tidings of great joy for all the people in our time. Uh, he didn't look on this as many of us do as Jung's own private record of his journey to find a, a personal myth for himself after he left Freud and psychoanalysis. As an analyst, I was skeptical of Thomas's grandiose vision. To me, 
It sounded like an archetypal transference to a book. And who was Thomas, I wondered. He was certainly not the doubting Thomas of the Bible. Did you know the name Thomas comes from the Hebrew? The Hebrew word te'om, meaning twin, and it's found in over 77 languages? Ah, that fits. Another piece in the puzzle that Thomas is for me. As an analyst, you know that it's easy to become infected by an archetypal field. As I listened to Thomas, I began getting a feeling that he was onto something important. I was becoming drawn into the field he found himself in, this magical archetypal field mm -hmm. surrounding the Red Book. Mm -hmm. And as Thomas told me his story of how he came to be who he was today, I felt a connection on a personal level, too. Mm -hmm. I began to empathize, to, to resonate with him. He had been on an individuation journey, and this, of course, fascinated me as an analyst. Maybe I was becoming his missing twin. As you say, Thomas means twin. Don't we call this counter-transference? Yes, twinship transference occurs when a patient experiences the analyst as very similar, like a twin, enhancing the experience of being understood and valued. It seems that you were experiencing twinship countertransference. Twins in mythology are often cast as two halves of the same whole, sharing a bond deeper than of ordinary siblings. Mm. Yes. As I learned over time, Thomas had been educated in science and had a PhD in nuclear physics. After some time at Princeton, he returned to Germany and he got a job in industry. <clears throat> Soon after, though, he became very depressed and realized there was nothing of meaning for him in this field. Now, what to do? He even thought of suicide. Then by chance, he discovered a Jungian analyst with a noble title, Gräfin Durkheim. She was a protege of Mary Louise von Franz. She lived and worked in a Zen Buddhist retreat center in the Black Forest. This saved his life, he told me. She interviewed him and told him he was in the midst of an important spiritual transformation and she could help him. Uh, he didn't know what she was talking about, but he liked her and thought he'd give it a chance. So he entered analysis with her. It's almost as if Thomas had been reading Dante. Midway on life's journey, I found myself in dark woods, the right road lost. To tell of those words is hard. Death is hardly more bitter. And yet, to treat the good I found there as well. Thomas, like Dante, lost his way in midlife and had to go down before he could go up. 
the name of his analyst is intriguing to me because another Durkheim, Emil, is the founder of modern sociology. And he did his breakthrough research right here, comparing suicide rates in different Swiss cantons. Thomas found the right Durkheim at the right time. <laughs> I must tell you about the Durkheim connection. But first, look over there. You can see the famous Decentus Mountain, covered with clouds. It's loved by climbers and hikers. But back to the story of Thomas. Emile Durkheim, the sociologist, was French. But Karlfried Graf Durkheim was very German. <laughs> Yes, Thomas's analyst, the Gräfin, was Graf Durkheim's second wife. He married her after he returned to Germany from Japan, where he'd been imprisoned by the Americans for his Nazi service as Hitler's man in Japan during the war. He claimed to have had a major transformation experience, an initiation into the spiritual, while he was in prison. And there he had taken up the practice of Zen Buddhism. The rest of his life was devoted to teaching Zen at the retreat center he created in the Black Forest. Thomas's deep connection was with Maria, the Graf's wife. They called their work initiatory and combined Zen meditation practice, Jungian analysis, and body work. This proved to be Thomas's salvation. This background was only sketched briefly at our lunch in 2016. The details were told me uh, at later meetings and lunches. The redemption of the Nazi Durkheim is truly unusual, and it makes me teary because it's just so rare. Uh, His process reminds me of what Martin Buber taught about guilt. One needs to illuminate the guilt Mm. and then persevere in confronting it until one is able to make a tikkun, a repair, where the human order was injured. Beck tried to teach you about this very tikkun. Yes, I remember. Beautiful. I agree. The proposal Thomas brought to the table was that he and I consider offering a seminar and a conference at ISEP on the Red Book and its meaning for our time. He even had an outline in his pocket. He handed it to me as we took our dessert and coffee. Uh, And I said I would think about it and let him know if I felt like I like doing that with him. He paid for the lunch. I handed a good tip discreetly to the owner, and we parted, saying we would continue the conversation. Now, in retrospect, I have so many thoughts about what was put into motion at that lunch. What thoughts? Prospero had a plan. Thank you.
I'll tell you more after we pass through the tunnel. It's a bit noisy while inside. By the way, do you know the story about this Gotthard Tunnel, Henry? Not yet, my friend. At the time this was opened in the 19th century, it was the longest tunnel ever built through solid rock. The chief engineer was a Swiss named Louis Fevre. The digging and blasting began on both sides of the mountain at the same time, and the plan was to meet on a certain day in the center. Louis was anxious. As the date was getting closer, he was in the tunnel one day and suddenly had a heart attack and died on the spot. It was just shortly before the two sides came together perfectly. The story is that he died from fear that they would miss the point of meeting and the whole project would be a failure. Every time I ride through this long tunnel, I think of Louis. Mm -hmm. He died waiting for the opposites to come together. And they did. And not only here, but in Jerusalem. An ancient tunnel was discovered there with an inscription from the 8th century before the Common Era, from the time of King Hezekiah, mm. recording the actual moments when the diggers on each side heard the sounds of the others mm. and the moment they broke through and embraced. <laughs> Those Hebrews experienced what he did not, the full conjunctio. Does the story of Louis Favre connect with the story of Thomas? Ah, yes, it does, in a strange way. This is among the thoughts I have as I look back on our lunch. You'll see what I mean, Henry. After that lunch, Thomas and I were in touch by email frequently. I had caught his infectious enthusiasm and we began to plan some events for the following year. But what neither he nor I knew at the time was how far this would take us. Looking back at our work together now from a perspective some years after that lunch, it seems to me that an invisible hand was guiding us from behind the scenes. Ariel had brought us together at that initial lunch but where Prospero was in this, and what his ultimate plan was, we didn't know. And what about Caliban, that shadowy creature? Where was he lurking? The Red Book is full of magic and shadow and, yes, tempestuous energies. Do you remember when you first heard about it? Yes, I remember clearly reading the chapter in Memories, Dreams, Reflections where Jung refers to it. But it was a mystery. What about you, Henry? I think I heard of it when it came on display in New York at the Rubin Museum. I remember being fascinated by the paintings, especially the one of the shadow. Hmm. You know, in some ways, the paintings in the Red Book exceed the text. Jung worked on them for so many years, around 12 or 14. The text ends with a vision in 1916, 
But the paintings continue until 1928. But where was the shadowy Caliban, you asked? In the four years, we worked intensively together on our program of conferences and publications. I sensed a shadow I couldn't put my finger on. It was just an intuition. I want to tell you about a dream Thomas told me, which he had just a few days after our lunch. Oh, now we're coming into Bellinzona. The train will stop here for a few minutes. Over there, you can see the Swiss Federal Criminal Supreme Court building. Doesn't it also have a UNESCO World Heritage Site? Yes, um, there are some medieval castles and fortifications in and around the city. But I point out the Supreme Court, where, which by chance appears uh, just outside our window over there, to allude to Themis, who was also active in the background. Themis, the great goddess of justice, prophetess and founder of the oracle at Delphi whose archetypal images holds the scales of justice. Yes. Let me tell you the dream. The dream he had a few days after our lunch. I'm sure he wouldn't mind my telling you this dream and sharing it with you. In the dream, he found himself alone at the entrance of a medieval castle similar to the ones you see over there in Bellinzona. He was curious, so he went into it to explore the rooms inside. In the castle, he found five locked doors, uh, but with keys in them. So he turned the locks, went through each door, and was coming to the innermost part of the castle when he heard voices and thought there were people living there. He felt he better leave and not um, intrude in their privacy, so he turned around and passed back through each of the five doors. As he passed through the last door, a young boy, maybe four or five years old, saw him from the top of a balcony above uh, and got frightened. In his fright, he fell and tumbled down the stairs, landing on his head, dead at Thomas's feet. Thomas was shocked and quickly ran out of the castle to avoid being accused of a, of a misdeed. End of dream. Is this a dream about a childhood trauma? The death of an inner child? or a warning dream? Good questions, Henry. We discussed the dream several times, but without coming to any conclusions. Mm. The Talmud teaches that the dream goes according to the mouth, meaning a good interpretation makes a dream into a good dream. A bad interpretation makes it into a bad dream. Mm. 
Actually, the dream reminded me of the death of Euphorion in Goethe's Faust. He's the child of Faust and, and the beautiful Helen. And he's so full of energy that he can't be controlled. One day he flies too high and falls at their feet, dead. And this was the direction my thoughts took. Yes, reminds me of the story of Daedalus who also flew too high and crashed down. But for me, the pivot is that moment when the young boy sees Thomas from the balcony before he became frightened. That's where I would start an active imagination. What did the boy see and feel? Hmm. Yes, for me, um, it remained a shadow hovering over our project. The series of books that we commissioned arrived in a timely way, one per year. As time passed, however, it became clear to Thomas that the ultimate goal was to have a symposium on the Red Book for Our Time at Eranos. I can understand the pull of Eranos. But tell me about the series of books you commissioned. Okay, here's the story. During several months following our lunch at the Veltliner Keller, another idea emerged in Thomas's active imagination. <laughs> he wanted to speak to me about this at another lunch, he said, so we set up a date at the end of December, almost exactly a year after our first lunch. I made reservations for a table at the restaurant Orsini, which belongs to the Savoy Hotel, where, as you well remember, Jung and Rabbi Beck had their famous conversation in 1946. When I saw Thomas enter the room, this time I arrived first, I could see he was bursting with inspiration. He held back until dessert and then said, what about publishing a collection of essays on Jung's Red Book by Jungian analysts and scholars? I wasn't exactly surprised by this proposal, but my first response again was, are you sure there would be enough interest out there? So much has been written and said already, what more is there to say, to write about? He went on as though I hadn't spoken. I mean a series of volumes, <laughs> as many as we can put together. Now I was a bit astonished. More than one volume? <laughs> yes, as many as we can. Just keep going. Leave it open-ended. See where it leads. Oh, this was a pretty big idea, and I took a sip of wine as I looked at his flushed face. Thomas was inspired in the literal meaning of the word. The spirit entered into him. Then he inspired or perhaps infected you with his enthusiasm. At first you were rather skeptical, Marie. Was it clear what made you change your mind? Well, um, both of us had been intensively engaged with the Red Book since its publication. 
I guess I caught the inspirational winds that were active in Thomas. Was this Ariel at work again, creating another tempest? <laughs> this spirit fanned the flames. And the rekindled enthusiasm was further fanned by the response we got when we sent letters of invitation to potential authors. Between the two of us, we put together a list of names, and by the end of volume four, we had published essays by 70 authors. It's an amazing collection of essays by Jungians from all over the world. It's la creme de la creme. <laughs> I'm still in awe of the variety and the quality of these papers. It was an amazing phenomenon that Thomas ignited with his spirit, his drive, his vision. Looking back, I can hardly believe it. Hmm. Oh, I see we're coming into Locarno now. Um, we have to get out of the train here. We'll take a taxi from here to Aranos. It's about five kilometers. Aranos? I've never been there. I feel like a teenager on a first date. I'm so excited. <laughs> excited to see the view from the lake, the round table, Casa Gabriela, Casa Aranos, and to touch the stone sculpture with a Latin inscription, Genia Loca Ignoto, to the unknown genius of this place. I can almost hear the voices of Jung, Olga, Neumann, Rabbi Beck, Father White, Gershon Shonum. <laughs> You're catching the spirit, Henry. That's exactly what Thomas felt. When we had put the third volume of Essays to bed in 2018, we began to plan a culminating symposium to be held at Aranos in the spring of 2020. I'll tell you the rest of the story in the taxi. We have to get out now. Be sure to grab all your things. I'm so lost in this conversation with you that I have to be careful not to leave my suitcase <laughs> on the train. Here's a taxi. Let's grab it. Thank you so much for listening to me, Henry. Things are becoming clearer to me as we speak. I think I'm beginning to see the shrouded figure of Prospero in the dark background. He had a plan. Prospero had a plan. Looking back now with you, I can see it dimly. I'll tell you what I'm beginning to understand as we drive to Aranos. We're going to pass through a tunnel, uh, then drive through Escona and onto the 
magical locus where the genius Ignotus makes his home. I must see that statue at Eranos. The two triangles in stone converging. One is coming down from above. The other is coming up from below. To me, it's such a moving way of honoring the unconscious, the unknown spirit, whether called or not called, will inevitably appear. That is magic. Yes, magic, and placed where it is, beside the big round table where so many conversations took place among the speakers during the annual conferences. Thomas was smitten, to put it mildly. I have a picture of him standing beside the carved stone with a lover's smile on his face. From the moment of his visit on, it was non-stop preparation for a grand finale symposium on Jung's Red Book for Our Time to be held right there on those grounds at Eranos. And soon the date was set, late April 2020. Letters of invitation to 18 speakers quickly flew around the world. Not one of them refused. But then COVID-19 arrived. COVID, the trickster, Mercurius. In Yiddish we say, man plans, but God laughs. Oh, so it was with our plans, Henry. By now we knew that the symposium would have to be put off to another year. Then one day, I had a message that Thomas was very ill and had been taken to a hospital where he was being treated for COVID and a heart problem. I was shocked. This came as a total surprise, let me tell you. And then, a week later, I received a message that he had passed away on Easter Sunday morning, just weeks before the symposium was originally supposed to have taken place. Cause was a stroke. The symposium was finally held in the spring of 2022, two years later. Thomas was with us in the spirit, but not in the body. His fate was like Moses. He saw the promised land, but could not enter it. Yes. You know the saying of Kierkegaard, we live life forward, but only understand it looking backward. To me now, it's uncanny what that dream suggests. In the dream, Thomas seems to be penetrating to the very center of the self until the child becomes frightened and falls. It seems critical that the child becomes fearful. Rabbi Nachman, one of the greatest Hasidic leaders, would say, mm. life is a very narrow bridge. Yes. But the most important thing 
is not to fear at all. Uh. How do you see Thomas's dreams now, looking back? Well, Thomas cannot go into the innermost chamber of the castle. It's through door number five. The Arno Symposium papers would constitute the fifth volume of our series, and he would not live to see it. And the child falls on its head. Thomas died of a stroke an attack on his brain. It's as though the dream held a secret code for the future, only so far and no further. Death. This is the shadow I felt lurking between us. Mm. Neither he nor I knew it consciously, but somehow we both knew it unconsciously. Now I see it. Ariel brought us together and oversaw the process. Prospero directed the play. Caliban lurked in the shadows. What do you think about life after death, Henry? Life? Life after death? Hmm. Murray, I think we come into consciousness through our body. Hmm. When our body ceases to function, we lose the ability to perceive, to reflect, to understand. In the Hebrew tradition, at the funeral, we say the person has gone to their own world, halach l'olamo, mm. a place only for themselves, the ultimate state of individuation, if you will. What can I say about life after death, or as we call it in Hebrew, olam the world to come? Perhaps only I could cite Wittgenstein's famous insight of that which we cannot speak clearly we must pass over in silence mm. what about you Mary what are your thoughts on life after death uh, I've been impressed by signals of transcendence from those who have passed away Butterflies, birds especially, and dreams, but also other synchronistic events and phenomena. I believe death is a great conjunctio of soul and spirit, while the body is left behind to return to ashes and dust. Something's still missing from the story. Hmm. Yes. We've not included Miranda, Prospero's daughter. The feminine. 
What drives the tempest from the beginning of Shakespeare's play is the dream to arrange the marriage of Miranda to Ferdinand. And it's Ariel who brings the two together on the island where they are immediately smitten by Eros. Where is Eros in this story? Let's say Eranos, Eranos, is Miranda, and Thomas is Ferdinand. <laughs> it was love at first sight for Thomas. This is what he had been longing for. Be careful, Henry. You too may be smitten. <laughs> It's dangerous down there, under the big tree and at the round table, and with the waves of the lake gently caressing the shore. But now I see our taxi is arriving at the Ernos stop. I'll get the cab. Be extra careful when you descend to Casa Gabriela. Uh, the steps are steep. And there is no handrail. Soon we'll be seated at the round table. <laughs> My lunch with Thomas. Written and narrated by Murray Stein and Henry Abramovich. Music by Leo Zionacek. Performed by Rodney Waters. Sound designed by Arian Frank. Produced by Lewis Morris. My Lunch with Thomas is a production of Blue Salamandra.